Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today on the program, we continue the series, He Made Me Human, focusing on Genesis chapter 1 to 11 with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we'll study a very familiar passage about Adam and Eve's fall into sin. So let's turn now to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. On December 8, 1941, U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed a joint session of Congress called together to deal with an emergency. Here's a part of what the president said. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. You know, Roosevelt went on to describe the unprovoked attack at Pearl Harbor, its naval base in Oahu, Hawaii, destroying a great many U.S. ships and killing a great many people. Roosevelt ended his speech with these words. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. And with that, America went to war with Japan following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, a date that will live in infamy. Genesis chapter 3 is the real date that lives in infamy, for that date makes the attack at Pearl Harbor seem small and insignificant. For Genesis 3 marks the defining moment, not in the history of a nation, but in the history of the world. It is simply impossible to overstate the importance of this chapter. This chapter tells of the day the world changed. No date in world history has so impacted life as this date has. The effects of this date will live in infamy. This date will never be forgotten, not even in eternity. When our first parents rebelled against their Creator, all humanity after them were destined to live in a fallen world. With this date would follow all evil, from wars to natural disasters to cancers and disease to ruined relationships to God seeming far away to countless lives condemned to eternal torment. There's absolutely nothing I can say that will overstate the implications of this day. No words describing this day are unnecessary superlatives. Nothing can overdramatize this day. This date is the day that will live in infamy. Today, we're going to talk about the day the world changed. We're going to talk about the fall. We're going to talk about the day the world became evil. Let's read our text, Genesis 3, 1 to 5. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, up to this moment, everything in the world that Adam and Eve inhabited, including the mountaintop of the garden that overlooked a world below, was as it should be. God had pronounced everything good. But in just a short while, the world, which was an unspoiled mirror reflecting the glory of God, would suddenly lie shattered into hundreds of broken fragments. 
It is true that the fragments would never stop reflecting God's glory, but the picture would become distorted and oft-times misleading. Sin would have entered into the human family so much so that no generation that would come would ever know any other reality. See, there are a number of Bible words for sin. They include words like failure and error and iniquity, transgression, trespass and lawlessness and unrighteousness. But let us never forget what sin is. Sin is absolute evil, for sin at its very heart is war at all costs against the Creator. Sin is an act of rebellion against God. It is a declaration of war against God. It is not selfishness or slipping up or being unwise. It is hatred against God and His ways. It is an utter renunciation of all that this world was made for. See, after Adam and Eve sinned, the entire human race became sinful. Listen to how Paul describes this in Romans 5. In verse 12, he says, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Or verse 17 says, By the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man. And then two verses later, in verse 19, Through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So how did we become made sinners? Well, we became sinners through Adam. Listen, if you will, to the confession of King David in Psalm 51, verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You and I were born into sin. We were rebels from the very first moment we could draw our breath. We inherited this from our parents who inherited it from their parents who inherited it from Adam. Our children will be as we are and the effects are suffocating. We will continue to live in a world of lies, of hatred, of theft, of killing, of wars, of terrorism, of character assassination, of slander, of adultery, and ultimately of hatred and anger and an outstretched fist against God. We will suffer because of this. We will experience hurt and pain, disease and death and alienation between us and others and alienation between us and God. But more, we will also be those who cause others to suffer. Within us lives this cancerous disease called sin. See, the good news, of course, is that God has not given up on this evil world. At just the right moment, he sent Jesus to suffer the punishment for our rebellion, to liberate us from our sin, and to offer us the gracious gift of his salvation. But my point in sharing this message today is that we understand that the existence of sin in the world and in our lives makes the good news of Jesus absolutely necessary. Declaring the good news of Jesus is mankind's only hope. So before we go to study sin itself and the effects of sin, let's begin with a temptation or the actual origin of sin. Look again at the beginning of verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Before we look at the temptation itself, I think it wise to do as the Bible does and notice the origin of the temptation. It's important to notice that the temptation does not arise from anything within Adam and Eve. That observation is essential to the text. Sin is not somehow inherent to us. How could it be? After all, God looked upon our creation and pronounced it to be very good. The origin of sin and the temptation to sin comes from the serpent. His presence in the garden is the unexpected surprise in this story. We're not told how he got there or, for that matter, how such a creature came into being. Evidently, God had allowed him to enter. And that in itself 
requires a great deal of understanding. Most of you who are theologically astute know that a number of modern theologians refuse to connect the serpent of Genesis 3 with Satan. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. Listen to what John says in Revelation 12:9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. See, the Bible never hesitates to identify the serpent in Genesis 3 with Satan. His name, Satan, means adversary, the enemy of both God and humanity. He hates God, but he also hates us, for we are beings created in the image of God. The Bible also calls him Diabolos, or the devil, meaning the one who slanders. In the first instance, as we will see, he comes to slander God. Jesus also taught that he was the father of lies, and as we shall see, in order to slander God, he must exercise the use of the lie, and he does it very effectively. Now, we might want to answer where Satan came from, and there's a lot of literature on that. But in truth, the Bible never addresses this issue in detail. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children. The reason I think that we should not speculate as to how it is that Satan first embraced evil is because God has revealed so little of that matter to us, and all we will do with is guessing, and I'm relatively certain our guesses will be wrong. But we are called upon to notice that sin and evil mean something different to us than it means to the serpent. We were enticed to do evil from without. He seemingly embraced evil from within in that it originated within him so that his evil is of a decidedly deeper shade than ours. Satan is the author of sin, and I think it is for this reason that his sin is never to be forgiven, nor is none offered to him. You see, all sin and all evil finds its origin in Satan. Human sin comes about because our first parents were outwitted and deceived by Satan. Listen to how Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 11.3, where he says, But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning. See, that's how Satan works. He deceived our first parents, and we became sinners. More when we come back. Everyone seems to have this innate sense that there's something fundamentally wrong with the world. All the evil and suffering we see out there, day after day, on the news, at our workplaces, in our homes and schools. But it's only the Bible that tells us what's the ultimate source of evil. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld takes us into this exchange between the serpent and Eve so we can better understand how it all happened. What makes a family? Family is a bond of body, heart, mind, and soul. And one way to nurture spiritual growth with our families is to share in a time of devotion. Homes are helped by a time and place to talk about the things of God. Family devotions may seem daunting, but help is on the way. This month, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will release a new family devotional, Four Minutes for Frazzled Families. It's a 31-day devotional guide for parents or grandparents looking to provide spiritual leadership in their homes and for their families. Back to the Bible Canada believes these times of sharing together are critical for the spiritual growth of the family. So visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 to request four minutes for frazzled families. And we'll send you and your family this helpful tool for free.
Essentially, what happened in the Garden of Eden was a battle of wits. A battle Eve loses for a reason we're going to see in a little while. But let's also notice that even though we are born into sin, and yet, we might also notice that Satan continues to work to deceive believers and unbelievers today. All sin is premised on a massive deception. We are fooled, we're tricked, we're painted a picture that is an illusion and a lie, a picture that we nonetheless fully embrace. It is only in the case of Jesus that Satan was unable to deceive. Jesus stymied him by keeping his mind focused on the truth of God's word. His heart and mind focused on the truth of Scripture, and as we will see of Eve, if she had only remembered what God had told her, she would never have been deceived. Evil begins with satanic delusion. Let's look at the actual details of the temptation, and let's do an anatomy of what temptation looks like. Some people have complained about the tree that God put in the garden. They have suggested that it was entirely unfair that God was setting up Adam and Eve to fail. Take, for instance, what would happen if you put a small child in a room with a nice toys, but in the middle of the room put a beautiful wrap package and then said to the child, see that? Can't have it. See, what would the child eventually do? He would eventually open it. But there's a great difference between Adam and Eve and the example I've just given. The difference rests in the fact that Adam and Eve were not sinners yet. And being free from sin gave them a wonderful advantage we don't share. They did not feel the same drivenness to disobey that we feel. They have no internal mechanism that drives them on to rebellion, no habitual patterns of a flesh gone wrong. I mean, think, for instance, of how many times you do something you'd promised yourself you would never do again. I'll never lose my temper again until you do. I'll never gossip about people again until you do. I promise myself I will not think impure thoughts again until you do. It is wretched, this battle against sin. It's so humbling and so defeating. And Paul says in Romans 7, 17, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. But Adam and Eve never knew that kind of internal battle. So when Adam was told by God not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he never struggled with that. He would not even have occurred to him that anyone could struggle with that. Of course, as the text reads, Eve had never heard that from God, but Adam would have told Eve about what God had said after she was created, and she would never have disbelieved him or thought he misunderstood. She would never have struggled with that command either. Obeying God came as easily as breathing. Their inner condition was completely at peace. They felt no temptation at all about the tree. God was showing them something in the tree, a lesson they would learn, but the lesson in their minds had nothing to do with an unknown phenomenon called temptation. Temptation came to them in a completely unexpected arena. It came not in appealing to their lower nature, for they did not have one. Rather, temptation came in two ways. First, temptation begins as Satan questions the limits of human freedom. Notice how the serpent approaches Eve. He asks her if God said that they should not eat from any tree. See, he overstates the restriction. He extends the restriction to everything that God has made. If there's one restriction, he seems to intimate, then everything can eventually be restricted. And slowly the tempter was to push Eve to a conclusion, the conclusion that no longer focused on her freedom to eat in the garden of plenty and of delight, but rather on the restriction that was in the garden. And now that we are in sin, this works extremely well. Tell a person they can't do something, and they will forget about what they can do. 
The idea of no draws out of us an almost fatal reaction. Satan was beginning to close in on his quarry. Now comes the second aspect of the temptation. Temptation is fueled by disparaging our privileges, making them appear a trifle when they are in fact a great and wonderful blessing. Notice now how the woman answers the serpent. At first glance, it would appear that she simply corrects the serpent. It seems that she is saying, no, you're wrong. We can eat from all the trees. We can't eat from only one tree. But she's saying a lot more. The first thing we notice is that she adds something which God has not said. She tells the serpent that God has said that they may not even touch the tree. We have now gone from eating to touching, but she then forgets to mention something God did say. You know, and back in Genesis 2.16, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Now, most translation will add a word here, and it's the word freely. You may eat freely of any tree. As you wish, use all trees for your advantage. And furthermore, it's not until later that we read that they have not yet used that privilege fully. There were trees not yet explored, not yet eaten from. Indeed, the principal tree not yet explored is the tree of life at the center of the garden. That tree that bade them come and partake freely in the life of eternity had not yet been consumed. But Eve leaves out the word freely. God had invited them to a feast of joy, a feast of freedom, and a world of discovery. But she responded by leaving out the great privilege of the garden. She merely responds by telling the serpent what they may not do. The book of Romans begins by telling us that the entire human race is guilty of our failure to give thanks to God. Have you ever noticed how subtle this problem is? God has given us life and understanding and wisdom and strength and a world that is filled with resources. We complain about the government and the fact that the next guy is a bigger paycheck than we do and a bigger house, and temptation begins by questioning the limits of our freedom. It's fueled by disparaging our blessings. And finally, thirdly, sin is defined by two essential attributes. What happens next is absolutely stunning. I like to imagine that the birds stopped singing and the world became deathly silent. Something absolutely unheard of happens next. The woman has told the serpent that if they eat, they will surely die. And the serpent responds by saying, that's not true. You will not die. So why is that so stunning? It's because up until that moment, neither Adam nor Eve had ever heard of a contrary opinion about anything ever. I mean, think about how profound that is. We, of course, live in a world with contradictions and lies and half-truths and different points of views and debates about almost everything. Politics, religion, science, family disputes, labor relations, courtrooms throughout the world, in every single area of human endeavor, disputes about what is true is so much a part of our experience, it's hard for us to imagine anything without this scenario constantly being played out. So conflicted is our world that some have argued that there really is no such thing as truth at all. Only perspectives, only experiences without any firm anchor point. But Eve never struggled with that. Her world was a world in which truth was enormous. It overshadowed all that was in the garden, the creation, and the Creator cried out with truth. Except that now, for the first time, she was hearing a contradiction. And now she has to make a decision. Whom is she going to believe? Shall she believe God or shall she believe Satan? I said that sin is defined by two essential attributes, and I will briefly mention the first here and then expand on that and mention the second tomorrow. Here's the first essential attribute of sin. It's unbelief. 
Unbelief is the attitude that looks into the face of our Creator and says, you have lied to me. You are not to be trusted. See, everything in this fallen world breathes out, our Creator is a liar. And it is this delusion that is destroying our world and is the reason for our death. Until we're able to say, let God be true and every man a liar, there is no hope for us. The greatest battle in this world today, indeed the greatest battle that there has ever been in this fallen world, is that we gather together to caricature our Creator as a liar. This is the ultimate cause of our alienation between us and God. Please come back tomorrow as we pick up this theme and understand our condition further and understand that the only way back then is through faith and trust in the God who has made us. John, this brings up a lot of thoughts in my mind, but one thing that came to mind really quickly was, why don't we talk about sin anymore? Even even in our churches, I think we're reluctant to talk about the whole issue of sin. And that's a tragedy. I think uh, when we stop talking about sin, we stop talking about the cross, the reason why Christ died, and our desperate need to be reconciled with God. But I wonder if we could even step back a little further and say, I mean, it is uh, unnatural to talk about sin in our culture uh, because we have been now so trained to say that we're really okay. Um, It's as if we're all dying of cancer, but let's not mention cancer. Uh, We don't really have cancer. We're really doing okay, and yet we're all dying. So I I think it is unnatural for Christian people not to speak about sin because without sin, we have no solution. We have no gospel. So I think that at the very outset, every single Bible teacher and preacher from a pulpit, and my encouragement to all pastors, even when people say, don't want to hear it, uh, you make sure you talk about it because you can't lead them to Jesus unless they see how deep and desperate their condition is without him. They are alienated from God. They are sinful. And we need to name the sins as well. A powerful way to end this study is this great truth that the ultimate cause of our rebellion against God is the failure to believe him. We don't trust him. We trust in ourselves alone and in essence, make God out to be a liar. Well, as we've examined how evil came into the world, it's been quite the journey unpacking what really happened on that fateful day in Genesis 3. I think this anatomy of what temptation looks like has been very enlightening, and I hope you've come to discover this passage in a fresh way. But Dr. Neufeld still has more great insights to offer on this theme, so be sure to listen again tomorrow as we continue to look at Genesis 3 in our series. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Here at Back to the Bible Canada, Our mission is to reach God's people and engage them in His Word through expositional Bible teaching. To achieve this, we make our Bible teaching and engagement resources available in as many forms on as many mediums as possible. One of these resources includes our bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine, containing exclusive articles from Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh-Gain's Phil Calloway, and a variety of pastors, authors, and Christian leaders. In it, you'll also find information about upcoming special ministry events, activities, and projects. It's our hope that this resource would encourage, inspire, and disciple readers to a deeper relationship with the Lord. To subscribe and receive a physical copy of our June issue of Truth and Life magazine, mailed directly to your home, visit backtothebible.ca 
slash magazine, or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.